We all have stress and anxiety and nervousness and pain with this diagnosis. When we meditate, I feel so light, like the weight of the world has gone off my shoulders. And it's a deep, peaceful calm. Just makes me feel so much better. And I feel like this warmth goes from my head to my toes. It's just great. I can be more balanced and centered and a little bit more clarity in my thinking. And it's just so beneficial. Welcome to the RMBC Life Podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm really glad you're here, since no one should face NBC alone. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Victoria. Welcome to my storage closet. Welcome to my kitchen. This is the only time I'm here. So this is it. Season six. Can you believe it? The Our NBC Live podcast season six begins today. Look at us. We've made it all the way to over 100 episodes. That's what I hear. Of course, this is my first episode. Yeah, 100 episodes is pretty darn impressive. I'm thrilled to be working on this one because meditation is a subject that is so important to me and so close to my heart. We had some amazing guests and terrific panel of patients talking about their experiences with meditation. So I'm really excited about this. And I hope that this will be a Terrific introduction to meditation for our listeners. For a lot of people, meditation seems a little hokey. They're not used to it. They find it very difficult to relax even for a couple of minutes. And I'm one of those people, and I'm still struggling. I'm hopeful that sooner or later, I will join the ranks of true believers. I think you will. And the interesting thing is that there is research that shows that Regular meditation really does help cancer patients cope with their side effects, with their diagnosis. I think the best thing is when you look at the studies, there are no adverse events. (laughs) So no side effects. What's not to like? And if our listeners stay until the end of this episode, they will actually get a glimpse of how it feels to have a meditation session with Barbara. So shall we begin? Our first guest is April Pichon. April is an oncology social worker at the Cancer Center at Houston Methodist Hospital. As you'll hear, April's own personal experience changed her from mindfulness skeptic to mindfulness convert and inspired her to incorporate mindfulness and meditation into her work with cancer patients. April, we are so thrilled that you're speaking with us today. Not quite a year ago, 
we started doing meditation sessions in our Zoom-based support group once a month, and people really liked them. And we're fortunate that one of the members of our group is a very seasoned meditator and teacher, and so she's been leading us in meditations. Learning how valuable this is for the community, we really want to do a podcast about it. So that's where you come in. I think the first thing is if you could just introduce yourself and talk about how you ended up being a social worker at Houston Methodist, what your career path has been. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me and for allowing me this opportunity to share a little bit about mindfulness and meditation. I have been an oncology social worker for 17 years. I had to do the math and I was surprised. It doesn't feel like that long, but apparently it has been. I really followed the crumbs to get here. When I was finishing my master's degree in social work, part of the requirements for that is to have a field placement. And I was fortunate enough to find my way to MD Anderson. And I was again, fortunate enough to be hired on after that field placement. And I spent several years at MD Anderson. From there, I transitioned to the cancer center in Baytown to build their program. And then I spent about a year in transplant, but I really missed oncology. It's a different environment. The people that you work with are different. The reason that we're here is because we're all very passionate about our patients and that changes the way that you work. And so I really missed it. And I was very fortunate to find my way back to oncology and be part of the Neal Cancer Center here at Maine Methodist, providing one-on-one counseling, which is my primary role in this department. My maternal grandmother was diagnosed with lung cancer and she passed at a fairly young age shortly after I was born, but her legacy lives on and that was something that I always knew about her. And so there was a connection there for me of wanting to learn more. I think it was just part of that calling that maybe I just hadn't known was there. I'd love to get a sense of how you incorporate mindfulness and meditation into your work with your patients. Just a little backtrack of why I incorporate it. Initially, I was not so much a believer the way that I'm a believer now in mindfulness and meditation. And I say that simply because I did not have extensive experience. I always knew about meditation, knew about guided imagery and relaxation and things like that. And I never questioned their validity or that they had value. But for me, it always personally felt like a luxury. It was something recommended just on your general list of things that are helpful for overall well-being and coping. But I had never practiced myself, never really made it a priority. In true student fashion, I did not practice until it was an assignment. I took a course called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. That was a requirement as part of my role. So I did the assignment and we had to practice mindfulness and we had to do it on a regular basis. When I first did it, I thought this isn't really for me. I had a bit of a perception of what I thought a person who practiced mindfulness or meditation did and that they were unbothered and relaxed and everything was just fine. And I'm not a person who thinks everything is fine. If I'm angry, I'm still going to be angry. If I'm sad, I'm still going to be sad. I don't think I can really be that duck that lets the water roll off their back. So I was a bit of a skeptic when I started, thinking maybe it's just not a good fit for me. And so as we got into the regular practice, I started to notice the difference that it made. It started my day differently. It ended my night differently. It did impact the way that I responded to stress. I was able to check in with myself and 
tend to my emotions rather than let my emotions drive me. And so once I realized that, wow, this seems so simple, I think on the front end, but it is really powerful. And that's another piece that I really like about mindfulness and meditation is there's really not a lot of tools that you need. You can do it anywhere. It's not something that you have to do at a particular time. And so I just became a believer myself. That really changed how I brought it into my practice. Now that I had that personal experience with it and that personal benefit, I could really speak to just how powerful mindfulness and meditation can be. When I bring it into my sessions, I always make sure first that it's something that a patient is open to because that's important. If you're wary and don't want to try it, I'm not going to force it on anybody. That's not the purpose of therapy. But if they're open to it and have an interest, then I'm able to share a little bit more about what it is. I always encourage them to just try it first. If they're open to it, we'll try it in session And then I like to check in and ask, what was that like for them? What did they notice in that one session? And if they think it's something that they would be willing to consider trying going forward, in order to get the most benefit, you need to practice somewhat regularly. I think when you do sessions here or there, you do get immediate benefit of oftentimes my patients say they feel much more relaxed, they feel calm. But I think for the long-term practice, you notice even more than just that instant feedback of feeling more relaxed. I think a lot of people probably share your skepticism, April, because I know I was very resistant to it. You know, I didn't really grow up hearing about. It's not really a thing that we did as a family, but I did start to do it a few times, maybe not as often or as frequent as I should have, but I think you're right. Yeah, it's just getting over that first little hurdle of being a skeptic about it. I was also a skeptic. My husband became a serious meditator long before I did, and he encouraged me to get involved. But I finally took a mindfulness-based stress reduction class. And at that point, I said, okay, this isn't too woo-woo. I don't feel too ridiculous. It seems to be helpful. But I think for me, change came during COVID. I'd been diagnosed at that point. And to get up every morning and have a practice was extraordinarily helpful. I'm trying to keep my balance, both with the cancer diagnosis and with the pandemic. Funny that you should say that. It was because of COVID. Our institution was responding to employees feeling stressed and overwhelmed as a result of the pandemic and how everyone had been impacted. They offered this MBSR course. And because I was in a therapeutic role, it was determined that it was appropriate for me to take this class. So the pandemic really spurred participation in that program, and it ended up having a really big payoff and seeing the value that it had and doing a little bit more research on it and seeing that it was being recommended and used for patients who had cancer and other chronic illnesses and terminal illnesses. When it comes to coping and stress relief, anxiety reduction, improved mood for patients who are dealing with depression, the research is there to support that it is beneficial. There are some claims about actual physical cellular changes, and those studies generally say they need a little bit more research. But there is some data out there saying that it's happening. Of course, we would have to deep dive into the quality of those studies. But the one thing that is consistent and really hasn't been challenged is just the overall improved coping. And so I think Mm -hmm. because of the pandemic, meditation and mindfulness has really skyrocketed in becoming almost like a household term now. 
metastatic breast cancer patients face a kind of unique challenge in that you can have your diagnosis and you can live a number of years with that diagnosis if you're fortunate enough to. But you're living a number of years in this weird limbo land of uncertainty. And I'm wondering if in your experience, people who are dealing with a terminal diagnosis, if you think meditation, mindfulness can be particularly valuable. Absolutely. I think that uncertainty is a really hard place, especially because a lot of People want to have a sense of control in various ways, and so much is lost when there's that uncertainty. It's difficult to plan because you're not entirely sure what to plan for. You really have to take a lot of things as they come, or you can only plan so much. And that's where mindfulness really comes in. It allows us to slow down and ground ourselves and live in the present moment and also explore things with more curiosity and less judgment. When you're dealing with something that's life-changing and can just create so many different feelings at different times, having a place that you can come back to that's a bit of a touchstone and can also help shape our thinking and our thoughts and outlook, I think that's invaluable. I love the way you describe this as a touchstone, April. That's certainly true for me, and I think it's probably true for most of the people in our group. When you're living in this crazy kind of reality, you need to feel grounded. Meditation and mindfulness can do that. On the flip side, are there times or situations where you would not encourage someone to meditate? Some of the times that I've known it to not be as helpful, patients just find that it's not a good fit for them. It's not comfortable for them for various reasons. The other thing is because I do generally lean more towards mindfulness, which usually includes a focus on your breath or checking in with your body. I do have some patients that end up having some respiratory distress or some other physical things where it's not peaceful, it's actually a little bit more distressing. Sometimes mindfulness can still be beneficial. We just have to do a little bit more work. I'm curious, what are some questions or challenges that your patients typically experience when they first start to meditate? Most of the time when I check in with patients and ask if they had a chance to try and practice, what did they notice, what felt challenging or difficult, the biggest thing I hear is that they feel like their mind has wandered and so they think I'm not good at it. And so it's another thing that's not working out that they feel like there's a shortcoming because they can't stay focused on the meditation. Mind wandering is a natural occurrence and it's going to happen. And if you listen to a pre-recorded mindfulness session, nine times out of 10, you're going to hear them say, if your mind has wandered, that's okay. Simply notice and bring your attention back to the breath. So really normalizing that for them and letting them know that's not an indicator of how good they are at it. So if their mind wandered a hundred times, but at the end of it, they still got what they needed. If that was a break, a pause, feeling a little calmer, a little more relaxed, that is what's most important. Not so much how long were you able to stay on task. Yeah, I think that one of the most important things is getting past the sort of concerns about meditation that you raise. I can't do it right. My mind is all over the place. Those other people look calm. Once you get into it, you realize everybody's dealing with that. That's what the mind does. And meditation and mindfulness in particular give you the means to make some choices about just how far you're going to go on some path of anxiety or compulsive planning or whatever happens when you're meditating. I'm wondering how you would differentiate between mindfulness and meditation and how would you define each of those? 
I think meditation is really a big umbrella term for a variety of different practices. For me, mindfulness is more focused on the mindfulness-based stress reduction definition and practices, which include awareness of breath exercises, loving kindness meditation, and so really drawing you into the present moment and that non-judgmental awareness in the present moment. But there is also guided visualization and things like that. And so I think mm-hmm. those are all types of meditation, but true mindfulness is really just a drawing to the present moment and focusing on the here and now. So not really drawing your attention to something else outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So if you have a patient who's really interested in going further with meditation after doing a little bit in your clinical practice, do you suggest that they use an app, go with a group, find a Zoom? What is your recommendation? I start with connecting them to resources that they can use on their own. So generally an app. I Do also want to make sure that they're comfortable with technology because that can be a barrier from time to time. The app that I most commonly recommend is called Insight Timer. Insight Timer has really wonderful quality programming and resources. And so that's typically where I start. One of the reasons I recommend it is because it is free of charge to access most of their content. And for patients who sometimes are dealing with financial hardship, but even if they're not dealing with a financial hardship, asking someone to invest a significant amount in an app for something that we're not even sure is going to be beneficial would be another barrier. I still give them resources like Headspace and Calm. I think that for most patients, being able to practice on their own at a time that fits for them, if they're participating in a class, then they're limited to practicing when that class practices. I also think that there has to be a little bit of a connection to want to join in a class because sometimes people are already a little bit hesitant about joining a group or participating Mm -hmm. if they're not even sure how they feel about it. But I think once they get that interest, then they start seeking out other opportunities for practicing and things that might be helpful for them. I used Insight Timer when I first got started. I was working then, so I didn't have as much control over my schedule. One of the things I really liked, you could see that there were other people meditating at the same time you were meditating, even though you weren't meditating with them. I really found that idea of connection and community really important. I think it's a big factor in our support group when we meditate because we've known each other for a while, and that's really cool. I think it's great to have a standing group because that helps us to schedule it in and say, okay, even if I'm not practicing every day, I know that I have this group that I'm going to participate in and I can get it in and recenter myself in that moment. So it really takes all of those different options to help us be successful at being able to practice as often as maybe we would like, or maybe we should. When I present mindfulness and meditation to patients, I actually encourage them to try different options because a voice or a background sound or language can be disruptive or jarring or a bit of a turnoff. It inhibits that connection. And so I let them know if you try one and it's not a good fit, try a few others because it might be the voice. It might be a a language that they use that just doesn't really sit or connect with you. And the beautiful thing is there are so many options that once you find the ones that do get you in that groove, then that's all we're looking for. So it's not important where you're finding it um, or what it is. It's just important, again, that it, it resonates with you. 
April. This has been an amazing conversation. I've learned a lot. I know that our listeners are going to benefit from everything that you've shared. And before we wrap up, I just wanted to make sure I give my colleagues Miranda and Victoria an opportunity to share any questions or comments that they have. Thank you for doing this and shedding light on this important thing. I wanted to ask, do you put in a spin on the meditation when you work with your cancer patients? So I generally start with awareness of breath as the meditation. And so for those, I don't find a specific spin or think that there needs to be. I do for a body scan. I think that's something that I would suggest being a lot more sensitive towards. And that's just because once a patient is diagnosed with cancer, there is some anxiety of will it come back or if it's metastatic, wondering if you start to feel something, you might wonder what does that mean or what is that? And so for body scans, I'm a lot more specific about what I recommend and what type of body scan I would recommend and the language that's used. And so I do you think that's important? It's funny, you've mentioned body scan in a completely different context that most of us metastatic breast cancer patients think. So scan and scan anxiety is a really big part of our existence. This is what we dread. This is what we have to go through periodically. We've had some people mention to us that the meditation helps them during their scans. So what would be the technique you would suggest for somebody who is dreading the scan and then being actually in that machine itself for a uh, measurable amount of time? What would you recommend they do? And is there a way to bring recorded meditation sessions That's a great question, and that is something that I would check in with them about as far as can they bring recordings. Anxiety, that's pretty common for a lot of people. I generally would suggest if you've practiced for a while to lead yourself in an awareness of breath exercise, just focus in on yourself, listen to your body, your breath, notice what happens as you breathe in, what happens as you breathe out, so that again, you're really focused on the present moment and checking in with yourself, and so less aware of, I'm in this tiny machine, that sort of thing. That's also a time where a visualization might be helpful and more of a guided imagery. What's a place where you feel calm? Do you enjoy the beach? Do you enjoy skiing in snow? And then preparing them to visualize this place rather than sterile environment getting this test. But yes, the first probably most ideal option would be to be able to play a visualization or play a mindfulness exercise while doing those scans. So I'm not sure if you taught me this April or someone else, but it's the 54321 grounding technique. You just take some time, count five things you can see around you. It could be desk, light, lamp things that you can touch. I can touch my hair. I can touch my sweater. I can touch my chair. I can touch my cup. Three things you hear, my heartbeat, my breath, maybe a car outside, two things I can smell, coffee, perfume, and one thing you can taste, coffee. Of course, you do it a lot slower. And once you're just in that moment, it does really help you focus. Um, I've actually used this with some of the women that I've met in the support group. I'm not sure where that falls, but that was really easy for me to do. Meditation, like you said, I feel like I'm doing it wrong because my mind starts to wander. I don't know how to start. Sometimes I feel a little hokey, a little silly, and I can't quite get past that yet. But this 54321 technique really helps me just stop, take a breath, and I do feel refreshed when I'm done. 
That's a great alternative, absolutely. And it's one that is highly used, especially for anxiety and being able to bring you back to the present moment and stop those thoughts when you're able to focus on things. And when you're naming those things, you actually stop and you can touch them. So that's really a fantastic one too. I love this countdown idea. Thanks for sharing it, Miranda. And April, thank you so much for speaking with us today. For me, gratitude is something that I try to cultivate through meditation. And I'm feeling big gratitude for you and all that you do for cancer patients. Thank you, April, for being here. I think everything you said was just amazing, on point. I feel like I have a better understanding of where to start or how to incorporate mindfulness more. It really is an honor and even... What I do is an honor to be able to walk alongside people during this time and just be a resource and be available to them and and hopefully make some part of that journey a little bit easier is really a privilege for me. So thank you for inviting me here today and it's been a pleasure. I met Barbara Chutru at my first share support group meeting back in 2016 when we had both been diagnosed with early stage breast cancer. The friendship that grew out of that encounter became even more important to me when we were diagnosed with MBC within a few months of each other in 2021. We share an interest in meditation, but I'm a relative latecomer to the practice while Barbara began practicing back when she was in college in the 70s. She's been leading our MBC support group, now on Zoom of course, in a monthly meditation session for about a year now And I'm so happy to be talking with her today about her own experience with meditation and how she believes it can help us deal with the challenges of our diagnosis. I was at Hunter College and my English teacher gave us an assignment to do something we've never done before. And it was the 70s and spirituality was very much in the air in my consciousness. So I decided for this English assignment to go to a meditation center and meditate. The New York Zendo was a few blocks away from Hunter College. They had an open meeting once a week for newcomers. And I went. I remember my first meditation I really thought I would just go crazy. Just, I couldn't do it. You just sit for 45 minutes. But I went back and I decided to continue. Zen is a very simple practice, at least the way it was taught then. You don't get a lot of instruction. And there's silence. Nobody guides the meditation. And that really suited me at the time. For the next few years, I had a pretty intensive meditation practice. I would get there around 6.30 and would meditate till 9. At one point, I spent six weeks up in the Zen monastery in the Catskills and totally immersed myself in the Zen atmosphere, which was quite wonderful. It was winter. There was snow on the ground all over. It was just beautiful. That was the beginning of my meditation practice. It's so great that you got this early start on something that has been so beneficial in your life. In the 70s, the idea of mindfulness, which came out of meditation, hadn't been popularized in the West like it has today. So I think meditation, including Zen, was pretty much always associated closely with spiritual teachings and specifically Buddhism. 
How does that play into your practice these days? There's meditation practice when we sit quietly. And there are the teachings. It's a basic teaching of impermanence. And when you're hit with cancer diagnosis, the first thing you think is, oh my God, I'm going to die. Everybody goes through that. And then, of course, the truth of impermanence is right there in front of you. Every moment, every breath is a little impermanent experience. But the impermanence that you confront when you're given a terminal diagnosis is pretty intensive. A time to really practice. This is what they're talking about. Can I do this? Can I really be with the truth that they teach in Buddhism? Can I live with this truth of impermanence without being dismayed by it? This idea of impermanence, of the truth that all things are constantly changing, and that much of our suffering is caused by our own failure or unwillingness to accept that things are changing. Has it helped you to accept and live with the MBC diagnosis? You know, there are so many aspects to it. Over the years, Buddhism or the teachings have informed much of my worldview. And having this diagnosis is accepting the truth, the reality of aging, the reality of illness. As the mythology of Buddhism goes, the Buddha was raised by parents who wanted to protect him and show him only good and beautiful things and protect him from anything ugly. And then he one day went out into the world and he saw a sick person and a dying person and a corpse. And it was like, oh my God, there's more to life. This is it. The truth of life is not about just being beautiful. There is death. There is illness. So how can we be with that? And he taught that if you live a good life in accordance with certain principles, it can help you to experience life and joy in the face of the truth of impermanence. So I think about these things, whether I actually realize them is something else. I do my best to follow the teachings. And some days it helps more than others. Overall, my life has changed. I've definitely become much more tolerant and understanding of all of the difficulties and challenges of life. And that's been a great help to me. And the practice itself, the practice of sitting still and being with oneself is very helpful. When you do it, Again and again, you enter into a space of calm and a space of awareness that's, in that moment, suffering diminishes. You're just here, just here on the cushion, and I like that. You lead a weekly class for elderly New Yorkers in addition to your monthly meditation with our share group. How do you tailor your meditations to these groups, and is there, are there areas of commonality? Oh, absolutely, because my elderly group, they know I'm dealing with illness. I haven't kept that from them, and they're dealing with illnesses. We talk about it, but we talk about it, in, again, in the context of understanding and impermanence. And then I, you know, I offer meditation, and in those moments, at least they report to me feeling a sense of calm. One of my group members who was in the hospital the past couple of weeks going through 
tests and she says she uses her meditation practice whenever she has to go in for some scan or some exam and it helps her to tolerate the duration of the procedure. And I also talk a lot about being in a group together. We have that with Cher. The Buddha talked about the importance of the Sangha, the community, having a community that you share your experience of life with. So you can feel this, you can commune with one another in a way that we don't normally do when you sit in silence, but yet you're very acutely aware of the presence of other people, that circle, that physical circle that supports you. When you're alone with a group of other people, it's not the same thing. That's a nice thing about meeting in person, although Zoom has aspects of it too. There are, of course, uh, many different approaches to meditation and to Buddhism. And while you started with Zen, I think these days you're more involved with a tradition known as Vipassana. And I've heard you talk about how that practice can help us cultivate particular qualities that can make it easier for us to deal with our diagnosis and also to overall make the quality of our lives and the quality of lives of people around us better. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Vipassana practice is a little different from Zen Buddhism in that Vipassana, my experience, get more instruction. And it includes this whole aspect of awareness and compassion. Zen is very strict. They don't talk a lot about compassion. But of course, the Buddha did. So when we practice, you invite certain qualities, and particularly the quality of loving kindness. The invitation to experience loving kindness is very important, especially for those of us with illness, but for everybody, in terms of how do we live our lives. And for that, There's so much wonderful imagery that one can use that invite loving kindness. There are very traditional ways to do it. Repeat certain words. May I be happy. May I be free from pain. May I have equanimity. So you repeat phrases. And you can use imagery. So you visualize somebody you love or somebody who loves you and you visualize receiving loving kindness from that person, and it can be a spiritual being as well as a real being, physical being, or it can be a puppy. Animals are a great source of loving kindness. So when we cultivate this quality, we can then direct it toward ourselves in our moments of difficulty and despair. And when we lose hope or feel angry, invite loving kindness in the face of everything that we experience. A lot of people say it's easier to have compassion for others than to have compassion for themselves. How is that true for people who are dealing with an MBC diagnosis? Part of culture blames us for everything, and that can be a problem. Cure your cancer, go and eat right, change your diet. A lot of people believe that their negative thoughts contributed to their diagnosis, or they're carrying some anger, which I've had teachers say to me that my medical problem was a result of my anger toward my parents. I'm like, please. And then you just like, what's wrong with me? I can't get rid of this anger. It's my fault. And you just beat yourself up over it. So you've got to 
let go of all that. Okay, I am a person who's struggling with illness. And one of the images that can be very helpful is to hold yourself like a child, like you're your own mother. You had a child with a cancer diagnosis. How would you hold them? How would you love them? How would you embrace them and visualize yourself being embraced by that loving presence? That's absolutely true, and I hear it over and over again, that it's much easier to feel compassion for others than to feel compassion for yourself. And why do you think that is? Is it because we're taught that thinking about yourself is narcissistic and being so self-absorbed? You would think that feeling compassion to yourself should be the most natural, normal thing for a person to do. I think there are a multitude of reasons. I think part of it is that we want to feel like we can control everything. If you feel like I got exercise, I maintained a healthy weight, I didn't eat too many carbohydrates, whatever, and therefore I won't get cancer. So there's that aspect of it. But if you do get cancer, then it's really easy to turn around and blame yourself for it. Nancy, that's a good explanation. I think what you said too, Victoria. Maybe we feel we don't deserve it the way we've been raised, especially women. We're very focused, outwardly focused. I mean, it can depend on how much we've received in our lives, but it is an interesting question. It's apparently quite common. You had a career as a clinical social worker, and did you incorporate meditation into your treatment? No. Occasionally, I do visualizations with them. I remember running a group, and I was really pissed off. Nobody was behaving, and I thought, what am I doing here? And I said, okay, Barbara, how can I make this moment feel better? What can I change within myself to be happy in this moment? It doesn't matter what they're doing. They have mental illness, and I did it. I remember I paused, and I took a few breaths. And I found a place that wasn't angry and wasn't aggravated. And I came back to the group with the different attitude. And uh, I was like, oh, that wasn't so hard. <laughs> so it was certainly gave me a lot of opportunity to practice on myself. Can you tell us a little bit about what it feels like to do the meditations for our group? It's so difficult to deal with this diagnosis. You know, it's, it's so difficult. I, I really feel for everybody in the group, not only the diagnosis, but struggling with the treatment and struggling with progression. And I'm not going to go in and say, oh, feel better. I'm going to do something that'll make you feel better. But when I do a guided meditation, I'm so humbled that I can guide a meditation and use my voice and my phrasing in a way that people find comforting or find soothing. For me, that's very rewarding, knowing that for whatever reason, it helps. Aging and, and, and illness and terminal illness especially, everybody will face it at some point in time. We need to learn how to do this. And our culture doesn't give us a lot of support. I mean, as we know, everything is about fighting and winning and continuing and surviving. Do you feel that meditation practice actually teaches you acceptance? Acceptance of what's to come or the situation you're in? 
certainly practice is about being in the moment. And the moment is the truth. Acceptance is when you just sit with the truth of this moment, of this breath. Buddhism teaches us to acknowledge the truth of impermanence, the truth of suffering, and knowing that truth, but also knowing the truth of connection. For me, there can be a lot of, it's just a very positive sensation to just be with my breath and sense this energetic configuration that is me, that is my body in this moment, and really feel that. This is a wonderful thing to know that experience. So meditation is very much about deeply experiencing this moment. And of course, if there's pain in this moment, then you make space, you hold that, you find a larger container and the breaths can hold those things. There's also that side of connection and feeling like we're all connected. We're all part of the earth. My husband was telling me about some meditation teacher he had who said, we don't walk on the earth, we are the earth. And to me, there's something profoundly comforting about that. The last thing that I really want to touch on is, what advice do you have for a beginning meditator? And keeping in mind that first session on the cushion, as you described earlier, can be torture for a lot of people. (laughs) What's your advice? There's so many little meditation apps. There's so much support out there. You can go online and listen to a guided meditation. I would say do it with someone. It is easier to get started with a group. It's harder on your own. You can do it on a Zoom group. And then once you're started, take advantage of everything that's out there. And even if you just take a moment and listen when you're on the subway or when you're taking a walk or in your car and listen to a talk or listen to a little guided meditation. It's helpful. And listening to meditation teachers talk about their experience and their practice and practice in general, I find really helpful. I have my favorite. And maybe just knowing that you're with a community of people dealing with metastatic breast cancer is helpful. Barbara, thanks so much for this thoughtful and I have to say compassionate conversation. And thank you for introducing us to some of the basic ideas from the Dharma or Buddhist teachings that are central to many meditation practices and for showing us how relevant and meaningful they are for us today. We'll share some of April's, Barbara's, and my favorite meditation resources in the episode notes on our NBC Life website. So now, take a minute for a stretch or a drink of water or tea. You're about to become a fly on the virtual wall of one of Cher's online NBC support groups. The voices you will hear next belong to members of Cher's Monday night NBC support group. They were recorded following one of our monthly meditation sessions. We're grateful to everyone who took part in that conversation for sharing their reflections and insights on meditation with our podcast listeners. I want to thank Kate Fitzer and Victoria Goldberg for helping me lead this conversation. I think this is the most moving and impactful meditation I've had 
You really helped to carry me through the idea of appreciating the pain and struggle that all the different areas of my body go through. I realized the adversarial relationship I've had with the various parts of my body that aren't able to do what I'd like them to do or the pains, the aches, the injuries, the not healing the way that I might want to. And I felt a sense of change and turning of compassion for my body. I just had a shift where I really want to support my body and honor that each part of me that's going through a challenge is going through a challenge and be supportive of that challenge rather than resentful and angry that it's not perfectly aligned with what I want it to be. I feel like I get to get out of myself. I get to get out of my head. Even for a few moments, I'm not thinking. I'm not worrying. I'm not dreadful or fearful. And it's so incredibly relaxing to me to just not be in my headspace and to go to that place of not being me. And that's a gift. When we meditate, it's awesome, but I often find it hard to find those 20 minutes to sit down and do it every day. But we all are have stress and anxiety and nervousness and pain with this diagnosis we have. And I just, when we meditate, I feel so light, like the weight of the world has gone off my shoulders. And it's a deep, peaceful calm. Just makes me feel so much better. And I feel like this warmth goes from my head to my toes. It's just great. I can be more balanced and centered and a little bit more clarity in my thinking. And it's just so beneficial. The body, I think, has the ability to heal itself if you give it a chance. And for myself, meditation is that time in the day when I really focus on trying to let that happen, trying to let those cells do what they can do and what the systems in the body can do to be the best that they can be and to maybe even improve. And I know that's a little bit of an imagination, but it feels important to me every day to go there and focus on that. I think that helps me get through the day, get through the week, get through the month, move forward on this journey. It's had that belief that there's some healing that's possible. I love the awareness that meditation brings to my life, especially when you're going through a diagnosis of metastatic cancer, or maybe you're dealing with chemos and treatments. Everything can feel out of balance. It helps me to put some of that on the side and be in the moment. And in the moment, I can experience just the awareness of where I am and that I'm okay. And what's been important to me is that meditation invites me to be more loving towards myself. And if I can do that, then I'm better able to be empathetic and also show love to others as well. 
wondering whether you have been able to transfer the things that you've learned and the feelings that you get from this meditation and use it in your day-to-day to help you cope with some of the experiences that come along with the MBC diagnosis. The techniques that I've learned have helped me in the last 48 hours immensely. I had to have scans and my stomach being as belligerent as it has, I was really afraid during the scans that I'd have episodes. And meditation helped me calm my body enough that I could get through the scans without having issues. Um, It was really a relief to be able to calm my stomach and calm my mind of the fear just through breathing and concentrating on other parts of my body and relaxing the parts that were under distress. I've always had great trouble meditating because I just can't quiet the thoughts. But tonight, I really felt it. And I'm just pleased to think that maybe I'm finally starting to be able to do it. I've got this head thing and my balance is all off and I get myself into some real anxiety attacks, especially in the night. So I'm hoping maybe tonight I can try this and maybe it'll help me, you know, to settle down because I hate that feeling of just being overwhelmed with this panic. What was just said about anxiety, I didn't realize I was not so claustrophobic anymore. Just doing a meditation before I went into a scan, just breathe in and out 10 times. I just tried that and my body calmed down enough. So now I'm not even taking Ativan or anything before I do a scan. So I'm really grateful for that. So it has very practical (laughs) applications. Is there anything that you find particularly challenging in practice? And and it can be hard to sit and do nothing for 20 minutes. I think that for me, it's always a challenge to quiet my thoughts. And one of the things that I've learned from you and from other meditation practitioners is that it's not that the thoughts are bad. The thoughts are going to come up. But it's just trying not to follow that path. You don't have to follow the thought to its conclusion, whether it's worry or planning or whatever it is. But everybody has that. It's not a bad thing. It's just that we're trying to give it a little bit of a break from being so much in our heads and being a little more in our bodies. To follow what Nancy was saying, when those thoughts come into your mind, which they always do, acknowledging them. And the way I envision them as a thought comes in and I imagine it just floating into my field of vision, almost like when someone's blown bubbles with a bubble maker. It's almost like these very soft, gentle bubbles of thought that come in. And I say, oh, there you are. And I gently tap them away to the left or to the right in my head clear that space to remain grounded in the meditation. I watch my breath go in and out and I don't worry about what the thoughts are doing. And if thoughts come up, I just go back to the breathing in and out because then you don't feel like you have to somehow get rid of something, but you're just breathing amongst those things. 
watch the air go in and the diaphragm go down and the air go out and the diaphragm balloon up. That works for me because it's something I can focus on. Barbara, you asked about what somehow interferes with this process. And I noticed that my mind is just sometimes so active that I find that it follows a path before I'm even aware that it's following a path and suddenly, wait, 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 I'm supposed to be meditating now. I guess it's just a matter of being patient with myself and letting myself do that. It's compassion, no matter what happens, it's always compassion, isn't it? Even if I spend 10 minutes often some tangent in my head, as long as I can come back and go, okay, I'll just breathe now. It's okay. And I assume that over time, it gets less and less of a thing. I haven't practiced it enough to know that yet. I remember before we started the meditations, it seemed very challenging and it seemed almost difficult to even think about how can I make 20 minutes and how can I do this meditation? And it became a barrier for me. But then once we started doing this more frequently and I started doing it on my own, I came to the point where I realized I don't really need to set aside or say, oh, let's designate this 20 minutes for this and put it on this long list of things that I need to do. But maybe just say, okay, do I have five minutes to just sit here just for that amount of time? And it really changed my life when I started doing it, thinking of it that way. So that it doesn't seem like it's such a time constraint. And then I was able to use it when I was at the doctor or during a scam. It's a little easier to calm yourself and get rid of the stress that you're anticipating. I think that's a great point, Kate. My house is like Grand Central Station. There's always somebody coming in, coming out, the phone ringing, the kids screaming, the dog barking. Sometimes it is difficult to find that 20 minutes or half an hour. But like you said, five minutes, even if I have to lock myself in the bathroom, I can find the time to do it. And so for me, sometimes meditation can be early, early in the morning before anybody gets up. It could be at night. It could be like if I'm in a doctor's office and waiting in the waiting room, maybe take that few minutes, five minutes. But it is very challenging, especially when you have so much going through your head, doctor's appointments, this, that. But to prioritize is also very important because this is something that it's important to do for yourself because it's showing loving kindness. And it's also giving you a time to not only be aware, but heal from all that is happening and going on around you. When I first got diagnosed with breast cancer, I was working and I took six months off and I did restorative yoga and meditation. The last six months of my life have been a bit overwhelming with my disease, personally, emotionally. And I, sadly, I have just not been involved with those things. What has come to my awareness is that I really need to make time. I just need to figure out how it's all going to work into my life again. It's hard when you think you have the next week planned and then all of a sudden your diagnosis changes and your next week gets filled with tests and 
meeting this doctor and that doctor. So that's been my problem, my unwillingness to commit to something because I don't know that my schedule's not going to change. And I have to get over that. That's something I have to personally get over and say that it's okay to cancel. It's okay to say I can't be there. One of the things that I really like about the meditation that we do together is that there's such a community. To be meditating with you, people who are dealing with the same thing that I am in our own different ways, our different types, and whatever different treatments, it's tremendously healing to feel connected with you in this way. At the risk of being schmaltzy, it feels like love. And I think that's something about meditating in community, whether it's in person, on Zoom, or even listening to this podcast. You're not alone. Time to find yourself a comfortable chair, cushion, or even a place to lie down. Next up is a recorded 20-minute meditation led by Barbara Chutru. Prepare to become calm and relaxed. You can sit, you can lie down, whatever position feels comfortable. Try to have a straight or straight-ish spine. You want to allow the rib cage to open, the shoulders to relax and soften so that the air enters, spreads out through the body and there isn't a sense of compression. You feel your weight sinking into the chair. If you're lying on the floor, feel your weight along the length of your spine sinking into the floor. And say hello to this body, to this being, this experience of yourself in this moment. Saying hello to this human experience of processing illness and treatment with all of its complications. And saying hello to this experience of being with others, holding the support of the community around you. Breathing in, the breath enters the nose, the breath goes down into the lungs, spreads out into the bloodstream and the oxygen is carried to every cell in the body 
where every cell expands and absorbs the benefit of your breath. The whole body breathes. And to sustain your attention, you might count three breaths. Just to give yourself a focus. So hold the focus of counting your breath on the inhalation If your mind is busy and you're planning or thinking, bring your awareness back to the sensation of breathing. Remind yourself that in this moment, your body is alive. In this moment, you're being sustained. We'll just take a few minutes and a few moments in silence. Holding your attention, awareness, and bringing loving kindness to the sensation of your body and the sensation of breathing. sense of your spine extending and expanding. The skin of your body meets the air, the membrane that surrounds you is permeable. We are one with our environment. The earth holds us with loving kindness. In this moment, everything is okay.
the breath breathes itself. No effort. And if it feels right, you can scan your body. Starting with your feet. Sensing an awareness of your bones and sending your feet loving kindness. Moving up to the calves and the shins. To your knees. Tracing the lines of your body with love and affection. Saying hello to your thighs. Saying hello to the pelvis. Saying hello to your organs. Saying hello to everything that is healthy and everything it is not. Sending loving kindness. Saying hello to your spine and the individual vertebrae. Saying hello to your ribcage. Inviting your bones to heal.
saying hello to your breasts. Be they present or absent. Sending loving kindness to your shoulders and your arms and your hands. Sending loving kindness to your neck and your throat. Sensing the weight of your skull, the interior of your mouth, and the bones of your jaw and teeth. The tongue is soft, your lips are soft, your cheeks are soft, your eyes rest gently in your eye sockets. Coming up to the top of your head. And saying hello with loving kindness to this whole being that's present here in this moment. However you experience it. and sending appreciation to this support group. Extending your loving kindness toward every individual member who's here now, or who's been here. Wishing them well.
Each breath provides nourishment. Bringing a quiet awareness to our presence in the universe. This larger world that sustains us into which we were born. each individual life. And in the final moments, repeat to yourself whatever words or phrases might feel well to you. May I be well. May I know peace. May I live with equanimity and joy and be free from enmity and anger. May all of those who I love and care about were present here and in my life. No joy. Be free from hatred. And may there be peace. And whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes. Hope you enjoyed our premiere episode. I got a lot out of it. If you would like to discuss this episode or any other, please join our closed Facebook group, the Our NBC Lab Group. This episode was produced by me, Victoria Goldberg, and my friend and the host of the episode, Nancy Roylance. 
Original Music and Sound Design by Associate Producer Connor Kinsley. This episode would not have seen the light of day without the assistance from Miranda Gonzalez and Kate Fitzer. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Vice President of Patient Support and Education at Shared Cancer School. Our special thanks go to our guests and the participants of the Shares Monday Night NBC Support Group. You can find more episodes of Our NBC Live wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at OurNBCLive.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Our NBC Live.